Day 30 of the war against Hamas, the IDF is on the ground in Gaza as the battle against the terrorists continues. Meanwhile, demonstrations around the world, coupled with anti-Semitic words and deeds. Top experts are standing by to give their analysis. I'm Michael Dixon, and this is Stand With Us TV Live. Shalom from Israel and thank you for joining us. We have a top military lineup joining us today. IDF International Spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Comricus, Director of the International Institute for Counterterrorism, Colonel Miri Eisen, and former commander of the British forces in Afghanistan, Colonel Richard Kemp. And at the end of this briefing, we'll show you some of the more inspiring scenes of support for Israel from around the world. It's day 30 of the war against Hamas, and in two days, it will be November the 7th, one month since the Hamas massacre. And 30, of course, has a deep Jewish significance, shloshim. Traditionally, after 30 days, a family in mourning gathers together to pay respects to the dead. Today, we pay respects to the 30 soldiers who've lost their lives in service since the ground operation began. May their memories be a blessing. And in addition, over 1,400 Israelis have been murdered since October the 7th. 241 men, women, children and elderly are kidnapped in Gaza. And rockets continue to be fired from Gaza at large swathes of Israel, including in the last hour. Over 9,000 rockets have been fired since October the 7th, each one of them a war crime. 200,000 Israelis are displaced by the war. And with rising anti-Semitism in Europe, a 30-year-old Jewish woman was stabbed at her home in Lyon, France yesterday. A swastika was dabbed at her door. Let's get an update now from the front line of the fight against Hamas. We go live for a briefing from IDF international spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Comricus. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you so much for joining us once again here on Stand With Us TV Live. Thank you, Michael. Uh, again, uh, as we're speaking live now, a massive uh, barrage of rockets towards central Israel. This is just uh, an hour after rockets hit in Kiryat Shmona, but there's really quite a massive barrage of rockets towards central Israel. I can see interceptions uh, above. We will, of course, continue our broadcast. The uh, situation on the ground as Israelis are going towards shelters for the, I don't know, hundredth or thousand time, uh, more than 9,000 rockets have been fired at Israel so far. 9,000 rockets have been fired and um, most of them, of course, intercepted by the Iron Dome. But let's speak about the situation on the ground. First front, major front of uh, operations is, of course, in Gaza. Israeli troops, ground troops that are in various locations in and around Gaza City, the northern part of the Gaza Strip, which is the center of gravity of, uh, of Hamas. Uh, our troops are in various locations engaging with the enemy, and I'm talking about infantry, armor, combat engineers, artillery, logistics, intelligence that are all working together on the ground and below ground and going to the places where Hamas has been uh, preparing itself. So we're basically going stronghold after stronghold. Tonight, there's significant military activity in the northern part of uh, Gaza City. We're striking a few Hamas strongholds in Shati, which is a known stronghold, and we continue to fight in Jabalia, and we're targeting Hamas wherever they are deployed. The aim of the operation is to dismantle all of Hamas military infrastructure. And there's an important point here because so many people around the world find it difficult to understand the linkage between the pictures of rubble and destruction that they see on their TV screens or their social media feed coming out of Gaza and then us speaking about October the 7th and they can't really understand how these two things are connected. The connection is very simple. The locations underneath those, those locations that are called refugee camps, but basically Hamas strongholds, they are the locations from where Hamas operates. If they don't have those locations, then they wouldn't be able to plan, train, stockpile weapons, and launch attacks. Those are the safe grounds that Hamas has. And if we don't take those out, 
then we are just inviting the next October 7th to happen in the future. And that is something that we will not allow. So for all of those asking what, what has one thing got to do with the other, that's the connection. And we are taking the battle to Hamas. The, pro the uh, progress of our troops is according to plan, good pace. It is slow, deliberate. We're using lots of firepower in order to minimize the exposure to our troops because Hamas uses tunnels, they use houses, they use hospitals, and they use mosques and UN compounds, and they basically go under all of those, emerge from tunnels close to our troops, engage, fire at our troops, and then try to disappear in the tunnels again. So it's difficult fighting, but our troops are very focused, they're brave, they're focused, and they're disciplined. And uh, tonight is a significant night of fighting, another one. Sadly, we have casualties every day. We report and our officers inform families that their loved ones have been killed in battle. More than 28 soldiers have already been killed from when we started ground operations. Uh, and each and every one of them, of course, is a, a family member that will be uh, sorely missed by the family. But our resolve and focus are very clear. And we continue with the ground operations against Hamas in the northern part of the Gaza Strip. And of course, that's in the face of international criticism. And I know that you see that when you're speaking to international media. And two incidents come to mind. Uh, the first about Jabalia, the so-called refugee camp. We should perhaps uh, dissect that term. And the second about the idea of hitting an ambulance. Can you give us background to these? Yeah, first and foremost, you know, the headlines on CNN, BBC, and all of the other networks was the IDF struck a refugee camp and that there are hundreds killed. So, of course, that's a bad headline. But then when you kind of peel that off and you ask, is that really a refugee camp? And you ask yourself, what, what, what is all this about? So, no, it's another massive misnomer and really a wrong name that has been uh, etched into, let's say, public awareness. It's an UNRWA camp. UNRWA is an institution that manages one population around the world, and that's only Palestinians. Um, they have the ability to have hereditary status of so-called refugees. So you have fourth and fifth generation refugees, so-called refugees, living in those places uh, inside Gaza. Now, what are we talking about? We're talking about permanent dwelling. These are houses where generations of people live in a Palestinian city under Palestinian rule but they're still called refugees. And I use the example of my own family. My grandmother came from Morocco and my grandfather came from Poland. In 1948, they were refugees. They came to the young state of Israel and for a few years, they were in all kinds of makeshift housings. And then they weren't refugees anymore because they settled and got on with life. Unfortunately, sadly, the international community, the UN and various other players have kind of eternalize this situation. And then we have the odd and untrue banner that says that we struck in a, re in a refugee camp. What did we strike? We struck a significant Hamas stronghold, stronghold that was underneath those buildings in a bunker, a big bunker and a tunnel complex where a battalion commander of Hamas was hiding with his combatant, with, with his terrorist uh, together with him. We struck that location, and I want to remind everybody, we struck it two weeks after we have been asking all of the people in Jabalia to leave, and not only dropping leaflets, but making phone calls, and we have uh, recordings of those phone calls. More than 6,000 phone calls have been made to uh, northern Gaza, and we have sent voice messages, and we have said it on social media and dropped many series of leaflets. We've done everything we can to get civilians out of it. Sadly, not all of them have evacuated, and that is the reason why there are civilian casualties. We will continue to fight according to the laws of armed conflict. We will continue to distinguish between a combatant and a non-combatant, and we will target the bad guys, the combatants, the terrorists. They're the ones we're after. And we still, today, this evening, are calling on the population in northern Gaza to evacuate south for their own safety. But what really needs to be combated is horrible reporting and bias, where it's a very simplistic narrative of shocking images of rubble, and then a headline uh, blasted across that this was a refugee camp, which is simply untrue. It's unprofessional to report it in such a way. And what I've been trying to do is to gently 
uh, state that, that this in fact isn't correct and it should be described differently and that the focus here was a military combatant of the enemy, which is a fair target and according to the laws of armed conflict. And I would urge our viewers to, armed with this information, comment, um, put, post uh, comments on these various media sources. The IDF today announced a humanitarian corridor. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, for the second time in two days, we ceased all fire in certain areas of northern Gaza. And ahead of that, we told the Gazans that between certain hours, there's going to be a window uh, between 10 and 2, 10 a.m., 2 p.m., this segment will be open and there will be no fire there, and you can use that in order to go to safety towards the south. Again, in an attempt to evacuate civilians from the battlefield so that only combatants, enemy combatants, remain there. Uh, it was partially successful. Many people started moving, but then we had to stop it and close it because Hamas started firing at our troops who were in that area trying to safeguard the evacuation of the civilians. And if you think of it, it's kind of a, uh, an absurd situation where we have us who are supposed to be the enemy that are making many more efforts and much more care for the uh, safety of Gazan civilians. If this was a you know a, a normal situation, then the party that rules Gaza, Hamas, should have been had have that as their number one priority to get civilians out of the battlefield and to care for them, or perhaps have them in the shelters. But today, a, a one of a, a, there was an interview of a, one of the senior uh, Hamas officials. The he was uh, asked a, a bit of a tough question. Tell me, why don't you put civilians into your tunnels? And he said, no, 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 no. The civilians, they are the responsibility of the UN. We built the tunnels for our guys, for Hamas. So in other words, the civilians, it's okay that they're above ground and they're exposed and they're in a dangerous place. Our guys, the so-called fighters, they're hiding underground and they're, that's what we build the tunnels for. How perverse and how lopsided is, is that kind of thinking? Exactly opposite to how we are. We spend billions of dollars of our own money and international and U.S. help on the Iron Dome. We spend billions of dollars on building shelters. All of our posture is how can we defend our civilians? First and foremost, ours, but we also make a lot of efforts to defend uh, enemy civilians that aren't uh, our target. And it's really an absurd situation. We saw Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah speak on Friday. What's the IDF assessment of the Northern Front right now? You mentioned within the last hour, uh, rockets landing in Kiryat Shmona in the north. Yeah, you know, Hassan Nasrallah is the leader of the world's biggest terrorist organization, definitely the most powerful with the most weapons and the highest quality of weapons. And unfortunately, many well-trained and battle-hardened terrorists under his command. So even though he went on for an hour and a half and didn't really have a, a, a very punchy speech, we are still deployed along the northern border and ready to defend and to do so in a very strong fashion. Uh, we understand that this is a very serious enemy. We cannot take any chances. Hezbollah continues to fire across the border. Anti-tank missiles. There was an Israeli civilian killed today who was driving a truck. He was killed by a Hezbollah anti-tank missile, bringing the number of Israelis killed along the northern border up to eight, two of them civilians and six of them soldiers. And just now, rocket fire towards Kiryat Shmona, which we'll have to see if this was Hezbollah or any of the other organizations. But at the end of the day, definitely a hot area. And the message that we're sending out and warning to Lebanon and to Hezbollah is do not escalate the situation. If you do, the destruction, the carnage will be on your uh, responsibility. You will be held accountable for what happens to Lebanon. And at the end of the war, you will ask yourselves, if you're alive, what did you do and what was it all for? There was an important interview with a Hamas official this week. And he said, uh, we will, I quote, we will repeat the actions of October the 7th again and again until Israel is destroyed. Your response? Yes, Ghazi Hamad made that uh, brazen and very compelling interview from the safety of being outside of Gaza, but uh, he is also a dead man walking. 
uh, together with Yichya Sinwar and all of the other leaders, the chief terrorists of uh, Hamas. Uh, but I think I thank him for it because it exposes in Arabic, but translated and broadcast to the world, to any of those media outlets that were you know, professional enough to actually focus on it. Not so many were, but a few were. And at the end of the day, what he says is very clear. This isn't about the Gaza Strip. This isn't about what they call the so-called occupation. That's not it. This is about the entire state of Israel, what they call Palestine. And they will continue to fight until they eradicate every last Jew. That is what they say in their charter. That is what they've been saying in statements in Arabic. And even sometimes they've let it slip in English, even though they've been careful not to say so. And they say it again, even after the 7th of October. They say everything is justified. All that we do, killing babies and children and the, 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 the carnage and the murdering and the hostages, all of that is justified in their minds. So this is the enemy that we're talking about, and it really makes it very clear. And it should make it abundantly clear to the world. And anybody who is questioning why we're fighting and why we need to eradicate Hamas, just listen to what they say. And they aren't, uh, uh, you know, shy with words. They're saying what they want to do. They want to eradicate Israel and they want to kill all the Jews. Either have us convert or live under their rule. That's what they're dreaming of. So let's listen to what they say and let's operate accordingly. That is what the IDF is doing now. Listening to what the enemy is saying and operating accordingly. And that's why we are striking their strongholds. That's why we're hunting commanders. That is why we're striking their infrastructure. And most importantly, that is why we won't stop until it's done. Lieutenant Colonel Kromikas, we know you're running from network to network. Thank you so much for making us, once again, making the time for our viewers of Stand With Us. We wish success to you and to all the men and women of the IDF. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for having me, Michael. Thank you for having me. Now, all across Israel, Israelis are finding solace through art as they pay tribute to those who were kidnapped, murdered, and also remember those who were kidnapped. Take a look at just two examples of this, the first from Haifa and the second from the city of Ra'anana. tragedy also hope and some unbelievable initiatives what you're seeing here is incredible art um, but not just art chairs that have been painted by the public that are as the person who put this initiative together told me waiting for the kidnapped people to come back chairs 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 this says, we're waiting for you. Just so you know you're all represented, there's a Stand With Us chair right there. And let's take a look at the art, incredible art that's being done right now. 
people who want to remember those we've lost and those we're missing. It says you won't kill our spirit. And they won't. Let's hope that this week brings our brothers and sisters home as soon as possible. Don't stop letting the world know that we need to bring our brothers and sisters home until every one of them is seated on one of those chairs. Our next guest is no stranger to issues of war and peace, or for that matter, the battle of public opinion. Joining us live is the director of the International Institute for Counterterrorism at Reichman University, Colonel Miri Eisen. Colonel Miri Eisen, thank you so much for being with us. Shalom, shalom to everybody. Miri, you've appeared before the TV cameras on Israel's behalf as a former spokesperson for the Prime Minister's office. What are the key messages that Israel needs to stress right now? The most important for us in that sense is that we understand not just why we're doing what we're doing, but what we're doing is something which is not just about Israel. At the moment, the framing in the world is at the best Israel against Hamas, and in many places, Israel against Gaza, and as we all know, Israel against the Palestinians. What we're trying to do, what each and every one of us need to do, is to clearly state so that people understand this is against Hamas, the genocidal terror organization. It's not about the Palestinians. This is against the Hamas capabilities. This is to get to our hostages that they took in such a horrible way. This is not against the Gazans. To emphasize that, some of the things that Jonathan talked about before. If we wanted, and I'm being sarcastic and you're an important audience, but if we wanted to kill all the Gazans, you do that with airplanes from afar. We are taking our soldiers. We are going in in a ground operation. We're doing it systematically. We're putting more Israelis in danger after we had 1,400 murdered, massacred, because we're trying to, as much as possible, save civilian lives on all sides. Those are the key messages that we have right now. They don't always resonate, but they are there. They are important. One other thing that people should be clear about is that Israel is not stopping. And I say in its own way, it's like everybody wants Israel to stop because then the war would be over. But that's what people are looking at right now in a very um, askewed way. Because if we stop, Hamas wins. If Hamas, the genocidal terror organization, wins, that is bad news for the entire world. So again, it's about the actions that we're taking against Hamas, and it's about stopping is not an option because that means that Hamas wins and none of us want to live in that world. Really important points. And most people watching, if not all, will still be reeling from the events of October the 7th. And they'll also be wondering, why doesn't Israel get unconditional support in the face of what they just went through? Why such harsh media coverage? I'm going to share in that sense with something that people are aware of. So everybody brace yourself. Not that anything in the last month has ever been easy. What we're in the middle of right now, in as far as Hamas goes, is a Hamas media manipulation plan. It's a plan, Michael. They plan this up front. On Saturday, October 7th, when they uploaded the pictures of themselves, the live different things, it was for them to show in Arabic to their base what they call resistance. Look, we can attack, we can do against Israel. Israel is not invincible. What they did at the exact same time from Saturday and onward, and we're already on November 5th, is a very clear-cut media manipulation plan where they downloaded everything that had been put up on October 7th and to the forefront, the story that they've told their own followers in Arabic to the Muslim world, and that's gone way beyond, is a story of the occupation, the resistance against the bad Israelis. And there's a reason that they haven't shown, as far as I'm concerned, any of the hostages and that they won't acknowledge it and that they won't share with it because the hostages for them are all soldiers. That's what they've told the world. What are they going to do when a nine-month baby and an 87-year-old Holocaust survivor come out if they show that? They're not going to show anything. For them, any Israeli 
is a soldier. And that's what they say, that they attacked military bases, that everything that they did is fine, that they took hostages and that these are prisoners of war. They're framing it in a completely different way. And the stage that we're in right now of this three-tier media manipulation, doing the attack and uploading it to show how strong they are, the second stage of completely denying it and, and taking it off, the third stage that we're in, and this has to do with the overwhelming response worldwide, is based on the past. It's the Palestinian as the victim. I listen to Jonathan. I adore Jonathan. He does the most amazing things worldwide. But to all of our Stand With Us audience, I want it to be clear. Palestinians are victims. They're victims of Hamas. They also chose Hamas. That makes it more complicated. But they are victims. And worldwide, the victim in this case, at this stage along the way, we were victims too. But right now, it's about victims versus victims. And then it becomes as if it's about numbers and data, no moral equivalency at all. So I breathe in deep and I say in that sense, what we need to be looking at right now is to, in our own way, be able to say, I think it's terrible when children die. I think it's horrible. And Jonathan said that clearly, that Hamas are holding people there against their own will. But I have no qualms about saying that it's horrible when children die. And I think in that sense that part of, and it's not backlash, but part of that knee-jerk reaction worldwide is because of the Hamas media campaign that's been going on for many, many years that has done this moral equivalency so that in this instance, when they deny, they're putting the onus of saying what happened on October 7th, they've turned it into a legal event that we have to prove. And we're all going, are you kidding? But we have to prove it. And we are proving it. Having said that, it's such a heavy thing to have on any single one of us. So be aware of it when you're talking to people that they're seeing victims. We're allowed to have compassion for victims and the victims in the Palestinian arena are victims of Hamas, the genocidal terror organization. But we need to have that compassion there. And this is a pretty unique uh, security humanitarian divide as you've called it. How does that play out, do you think, in the particular, this particular conflict? For the first time, we are seeing a clear-cut difference between public opinion. And here I'm going to say the under 30-year-olds that are very much in the world, Michael, where sadly TikTok terror is hip. That's a divide. We need to be aware of it. It's not going to be the TikToks that we're watching a stand with us. It is going to be what's out there where it's small, edited, hip kind of different things, which are showing them, as I said before, resistance, fighter, and it's within a framing that has to do with a lot of different terminology that goes with that. So that's one aspect that we need to be aware of. I'm very challenged at the moment by that younger generation on campuses um, and I think that part of that is really not trying to go after those who are vehemently anti-Semitic because, Michael, this has brought out the worst anti-Semitism that we've ever seen, that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. And I'm grateful that I'm in Israel right now. Of all places, I feel safer here. But in the older generation, and especially for me, in elected governments worldwide, all of these different Western liberal democracies, and yes, there's the voices, they're aware of the humanitarian, but look at how much at the end they are backing not just Israel's actions, they're saying, be careful, and we are, we are way more careful than they are and have ever been, but in doing so, they are continuing to give us that backing. It's the United States and it's Canada, it's the UK and it's France, it's all of the EU. That is not something small. We've never had that before. And, and I don't think that we have to go, why are they saying humanitarian relief? I'm like, so I don't want the people in the Gaza Strip, the 2.3 million, to die. If I wanted them to die, I could do it in different ways. So if they need to get water and food and medicine, that's fine. But I don't want to empower in any way Hamas when they do so. So I say in that sense, it's a difference from the past in its own horrific way. It's better than it's been in the past. But that TikTok generation is a huge challenge. Yeah. Uh, you were gracious enough to allow myself and my co-author to profile you in a book that we wrote, which seems ever relevant now called Is Resilience, about Israeli resilience. And it was in a chapter where we discussed national resilience. So sorry to put you on the spot, but what is your take on how Israelis move on from here in the face of such an event? Michael, it's you and me, okay? 
So when we were talking about the second intifada and I was describing myself as a colonel with three kids, so I'm still a colonel, but I'm retired. But right now, my husband is mobilized. My three children are all in service. And I say that because you could tell your story and I could tell my story. And that's the story of the state of Israel right now. We are all in this. In its own way, we are amazing. It's not because we're thick-skinned. It's because we're tough and we know how to cry. We know how to take action and to bury our dead. And that's what we're doing right now. We're doing both. We are so much more cohesive at the moment. It isn't as if. That's part of who we are right now. And in its own way, that's what I look at for the future. That capability to have 1,400 people murdered. And it's the Shloshim, as you said before, and we can't even mourn it. We don't even know who all of the dead are. And yet everybody is going out to help the um, agricultural communities that have been devastated, to host the families, to help with education, to donate whatever you can donate, let alone the fact that they had 200% of reservists come when they only called 100%, only in Israel, only in Israel. And at the same time, we have our friends and brothers and sisters in the diaspora and our non-Jewish allies and friends around the world anxious with worry, also looking at their own backyards, worried about things there. Um, what word can we give to them about the situation and where they stand in this, looking at things from afar? Michael, I'm going to say something that I've never said in my entire life, and it scares me even in saying it. In my lifetime, I never thought that I would be so grateful that my parents immigrated to Israel 52 years ago because the outburst of anti-Semitism, not anti-Israel, anti-Semitism is something I never thought I would see. I feel right now, my husband mobilized, my three kids inside the military, I feel safer, sirens around us, safer here than I feel at the moment. It has brought out something that was under the surface. Perhaps we should be happy it's above surface right now. But I do think that we, we stand with us, our supporters are part of what can be done in that sense, in educating, in talking, in not accepting these basic narratives in a lot of different ways. Every audience is a little different. Every conversation is a little different. I, in that sense, as I say that right now, I really do feel that it's scarier outside of Israel with everything going on here, with everything that Jonathan talked about. It's yeah. scarier outside for Jews and pro-Israel people than it is actually in Israel right now. So how about we'll back each other, strengthen each other as we always do? Sounds good to me. And I can say that, you know, from the point of view of being in Israel, I've never felt more uh, grateful for the support that we have from our allies, particularly our non-Jewish allies who have been reaching out at this time. Uh, Colonel Mary Eisen, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. As always, thank you. Thank you. Take care. Uh, now, since October the 7th, you've helped stand with us as reach on social media grow to over 700 million globally. Please do keep sharing across our social media platforms. You can find all the links you need at standwithus.com. Now let's bring in our final guest today. He was the former commander of British Armed Forces in Afghanistan. He's flown to Israel to see things for himself on the ground, and he's coming to us live from Tel Aviv. Please welcome Colonel Richard Kemp. Colonel Kemp, thank you so much for being here. You're such a friend of Stand With Us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Michael. It's uh... It's always a pleasure to be in Israel, even at such dark days as this. But uh, thank you very much for having me as well. And you've been here in Israel many times during war. Uh, what was your impression, though, coming this time? Well, I arrived um, on the Monday after the, uh, the massacre of 7th of October, and I came to a country that was almost unrecognizable. It was unrecognizable because of, I would say, two things. First of all, the... Um, the, the shock that the Israelis faced. And you couldn't have a conversation, quite rightly, you couldn't have a conversation with anybody in any part of the country that did not focus on the horrible events that took place. And that's entirely understandable. So a country in deep shock. Secondly, though, I would say a country that is has a, an extraordinary sense of unity, much more unity than I've ever seen in this country before. With everyone I've spoken to, absolutely determined to defeat this enemy, understanding exactly what they face, understanding the, the very hard path ahead, but united in that determination. 
and, and the, the other thing I've, I've uh, noticed, I, I've visited the front lines in Lebanon or in the Lebanese border and the Gaza border, and I've spoken to many IDF soldiers and commanders. Um, and, and I found that experience uh, over several days, I found that experience insp inspirational. These young men, and so, in some cases, older men and women, um, obviously a large number of reservists, as Miri said, something like 200% of those called answered the call, um, which was extraordinary. Uh, but they, these, these young and old people who are going into fight and who were preparing to go into fight, absolutely committed and dedicated to what they're about to do. They knew, they know the dangers that face them. And we've seen that in the unfortunately large number of Israeli soldiers who have been killed so far already in the ground campaign. They knew the dangers that faced them, but were absolutely determined to, 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 to put their own lives on the line if necessary, to defend their brothers, sisters, fathers, husbands, wives, family, friends, and countrymen who, who, who are being threatened on their very doorstep. It's, as a British soldier, I've very rarely fought in a conflict that's involved anything quite so close. Normally, it's been thousands of miles away. These people are defending their very homes uh, right next door to where the fighting is taking place. And as I say, I found it inspirational and I also found it humbling talking to them. And you wrote an article this week titled Hamas wants its own citizens killed. They must not win. What are the stakes then in this battle for the world? Well, this, this is pr primarily this is a fight for Israel. And it's a fight that I'm very happy to say that the majority of the Western world is absolutely on the side of Israel, standing right behind them with the US sending in carrier strike groups and other essential military equipment. The United Kingdom also sending naval assets to the Mediterranean, as well as aerial reconnaissance and intelligence assets to support Israel. It's, it's, uh, extre I'm extremely pleased to see that level of support that, that exists today. And I think one of the reasons is not just because of the fight for Israel, which is important to so many of us, but it's a fight for world civilization. The, those people who oppose Israel, who carried out those massacres, who have stated their intention to carry out even more massacres if they have the chance. They won't have the chance, but they've stated that intention. Um, they're not just the enemies of Israel, they're the enemies of civilization. And we've seen that in the extraordinary mass protests, demonstrations, marches in London, in Washington, in other cities around Europe and the United States, which are full of people who are supporters of Hamas. They want Hamas to succeed. They, yes, of course, there are some who have great sympathy with the plight of the Palestinian people, as all of us do. But there's such a strong element of support for Hamas. And that shows the danger that we all face. Because if they want to destroy the only democracy, the only Western liberal democracy in the Middle East, they also want to destroy our democracy. And let's not forget, forget what Hamas is about. Hamas, Hamas's founding charter is not interested in a two-state solution or living in peace with its neighbors. It is only interested in destroying the state of Israel from the river to the sea, a chant that's been heard in capital cities and other cities in Europe and the US for the last four weeks and, and long before that as well. So they want to destroy Israel. They want to kill Jews, not just in Israel, but everywhere. And explicitly, they say they want to hunt down anyone who has helped and assisted the Jewish state from any part of the world. They want to, those who they don't kill, they want to subjugate. They want to convert them to Islam or treat them as very much third-class citizens adhering to the laws of Islam. And, and, and this is a, not just a danger to us, it's a not just a danger to Israel, it's a danger to us all. It's the same danger as the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda posed to us. They had the same objectives. Once Hamas have established, have destroyed Israel, they want to play their role too in establishing the global Islamic caliphate. That they specify as Al-Qaeda and Islamic State did as well. And of course, we've seen some of those scenes this weekend. We saw public monuments uh, defaced in Washington, D.C., in London, uh, and those chants on, on Western streets, very worrying indeed. I do think they represent a loud minority. I do think that the silent majority, majority watches that uh, with revulsion. Um, I wanted to ask you about tactics. Uh, what, in your view, constitutes success 
in terms of the IDF's mission? And how are you seeing their being able to push back against Hamas, particularly in its network of terror tunnels? Well, I think the first thing we should remember, of course, is that Hamas is not a, uh, a sort of separate terrorist organization. It's part, it's a, a part of the, what Iran calls its, its axis of resistance, which includes Hamas, Islamic State, uh, sorry, Islamic Jihad in, in Gaza. It includes Hezbollah. It includes its proxies in Syria. It includes its proxies, the Houthis in Yemen, and, and also its proxies in Iraq, all of whom are hostile, of course, hostile towards Israel. So we shouldn't just look at this as a, um, a, a, a lone conflict in Gaza. We should look beyond that. We should look at what's happening up on the northern border with Lebanon, where there's been intensive hostilities against Israel from Hezbollah there. We should look where it's directed from Iran. And these, all of these problems have to be dealt with uh, at some point. When exactly is, is really, for I think, for the Israeli government to decide. And I believe it should be a, a global campaign that takes in Israel's allies as well. But we'll have to see whether that happens. In terms of success on the battlefield, we've seen four weeks of intensive airstrikes against Hamas in Gaza. And when I say Hamas, I do include the other smaller terrorist groups under the Hamas umbrella in Gaza. But an intensive air campaign against Hamas, which has done immense damage to Hamas's terrorist army in Gaza. Enormous damage, killing senior terrorists, killing fighters, taking out infrastructure, destroying weapon systems, destroying some of the tunnels. And now for the last week, we've seen IDF forces on the ground and they've been encircling Gaza City. They've been carrying out raids elsewhere and operations elsewhere, but their primary focus is around Gaza City, which is the main uh, centre of, of Hamas's ter Hamas terrorist organisation. So that's what they're focusing on. And it's a very tough fight. It's, it's, it's a, it, will, it will develop into a fight in the streets of Gaza. Now, the IDF are not going to go house to house and clear every house. They have in, very, very good intelligence giving key locations that they will be operating against in the, next, in the coming days and weeks. That, but it's, it's very difficult. Tanks, for example, in a, in a built-up area are very vulnerable, as, as the Russians experienced when they invaded Ukraine last year. They found that when they were operating in urban areas that they were, they were vulnerable to short-range handheld anti-tank weapons. The same is true of the Israeli tanks, and that's why they need infantry on the ground, and they have infantry on the ground to protect them. And then, of course, there's the underground network underneath Gaza, and that is also a very dangerous complex. I think in normal circumstances, the IDF would do everything they could to destroy those tunnels without entering them. And, of course, they have not only airstrikes, but also specific, specially designed weapon systems to, to, to deal with those tunnels underground and to destroy them. But the problem, of course, is that in this situation, we have 240 plus Israeli hostages being held in some cases, or maybe in all cases, in those tunnels. And so the IDF will have to enter the tunnels to deal with them. Very, very difficult environment. I can't think of a more difficult military environment to operate in than that vast complex of tunnels. But the IDF, as they have trained to fight in urban areas, they also have units that have been specially trained to fight in tunnels, and they'll use those to deal with Hamas inside those tunnel complexes. When you ask the question, what does success mean? I think success means destroying Hamas as capability of attacking Israel in any way. And that means killing large numbers of Hamas terrorists. It means taking out their infrastructure, destroying their weapons, or forcing terrorists to flee. And we've seen cases in the last few days of Hamas attempting, Hamas terrorists attempting to flee, in some cases using ambulances, to get uh, out of the Gaza Strip. And so that's, that's basically success. I've, I, I'm not going to go on beyond that, but, but of course, the next stage is what happens to the Gaza Strip afterwards, how it's controlled, how it's organised, how it's governed. And, and I would suggest that it's very likely the IDF are going to be inside Gaza or in some capacity for, for a long period of time, looking after at least the security of the Gaza Strip. I should add to all of what I've said that, and I think Jonathan mentioned it as well, the, one of the IDF's key priorities, they have three major priorities in, or perhaps four major priorities in this operation. One is to destroy as many Hamas terrorists as they can. Two is to 
avoid killing civilians, and they're very selective and careful in their targeting, as careful and selective as they can be, adhering to the laws of war in everything I've seen of the IDF. Thirdly, of course, to avoid killing any of the hostages that Hamas have. And fourthly, to try and keep as many IDF soldiers alive as possible. That's not that's often forgotten about, the fact that soldiers, obviously their lives are just as valuable as anybody else's lives, but they're also extremely important to fight this enemy. And so IDF commands will be planning this operation so that as, as, me, as few soldiers as possible are killed in their offensive operations. And so when you hear of calls for a ceasefire um, or humanitarian pauses, uh, what's your response to that? I think um, anyone who calls for a ceasefire, what they, what they want is either, is, it's either because they're naive, and of course everybody wants a ceasefire, everyone wants the violence to stop, but it, it's naive to think that if Israel ceased fire, that what that would mean is they they would then stop fighting and withdraw back behind the the border with Gaza, and that that would allow Hamas to reconstitute itself, to rebuild its terror organization, and to uh, to attempt to carry out the kind of massacre they carried out on the seventh of October, to keep firing rockets, and they fired thousands of rockets already into Israeli civilian populations. Thankfully, the Iron Dome have present prevented them having as much success as they would have liked. But that's what a ceasefire means. Uh, it, it, it's, not, it's not just, you know, this is not just a humanitarian thing. It's effectively Israel surrendering to Hamas. And therefore, I think it would be very unwise for Israel to cease firing while um, Hamas continues to exist. It has no option, and no country would have that option. And, and as for humanitarian pauses, I think... It's pretty much the same thing. It amounts to a, what is a humanitarian pause? It's a ceasefire. So they're asking for the same thing. And I think the Israeli government has said they will consider a humanitarian pause once all of the hostages have been released. Meanwhile, they're allowing food, water and medicine into Gaza uh, to, to, to help the civilian population. Of course, there is a risk in that of those uh, stores being hijacked by Hamas. And we've seen reports from the UN that that's already happened. But I think that's a risk Israel is clearly prepared to take. What they're not allowing in at the moment is fuel, because of course fuel, while it's useful for generating power for hospitals and other places like that, is also vital for Hamas to maintain their, their tunnel structure, particularly the tunnel structure and other fighting capabilities, lighting, air within the tunnels, all of those things. So I think Israel's right to to, to limit the humanitarian aid that comes in in terms of, of fuel. Uh, and ultimately, I, you know, th th this fight has to be fought either until Hamas, Hamas is defeated or until Hamas surrenders. And that's one thing we haven't heard people calling for, the surrender of Hamas. If people genuinely want to save civilian lives in Gaza, which I think we all do, then the answer is Hamas lays down their weapons and surrenders. Uh, you've been a steadfast friend of Stand With Us. You've been part of our educational efforts in different locations around the world, including, of course, with Stand With Us UK, but in many other places besides. It's key to have a movement of support with Israel that is Jewish and non-Jewish. And so what is your message to those who are not Jewish who are watching all of this play out? Well, I think it's 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 a an indictment, unfortunately, of too many people that, that they let the Jews shoulder the burden of this threat that's not just to a very close ally of the UK and the US and other countries as well, um, but is also a, a beacon of, of civilization in the Middle East. And, it, and it, it's really for non-Jews, as well as Jews, to stand up and give their support to Israel and to the Jewish communities. Let's not forget, this fight is not only about Israel and civilization, it's also a fight against Jews. And, and a lot of the, uh, the demonstrations, the protests, the activities on campus, a lot of that is directed at Jews. It's intended to intimidate Jews, to undermine Jews' support for Israel. And I appreciate with Jews and non-Jews that it's very difficult. It is very difficult when you've got a large majority of people who are opposed to you, for example, on university campuses. And you said maybe it's a minority, but the, the majority perhaps is silent but the noisy ones tend to be anti-Israel. 
and, 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 and it's very hard to expect young people to stand up against them. But I think, and, and particularly when, there is, when we're bombarded with so much misinformation and lies about what's going on in Gaza at the moment. But I would, what I would say to, to Jewish students and non-Jewish students and others is do not consider this to be a burden on your shoulders. It is tough, but it's also an honour to be able to, to know that you're in the right, you're standing up, you're standing up in whatever way you can not just for Israel, but for your families, for the Jewish community, for the Jewish way of life. Uh, and, and, and it's something that, you know, generation after generation throughout history have done. Um, and, and it's something that I think I would hope that, you know, if you are able to stand up despite all the challenges that you face and be able to say after all this is finished that I, I stood with Israel and I stood with the Jewish community, I think that would be something to be extremely proud of. And uh, I will never forget when you flew out here to Israel during Operation Protective Edge and you spoke at a Stand With Us event to give strength to Israelis here. It was held in a synagogue, I should tell our viewers, and the rabbi insisted that you cover your head with a kippah. Well, uh, then on Yom Kippur, and all because the man standing at the front, um, it wasn't the rabbi, but a Roman Catholic British colonel with a kippah. So God bless you for that. And thank you for all that you do to keep people's eyes open about Israel. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Colonel Richard Campbell. Now, just before I show you how you've been rallying for Israel around the world, don't forget to sign up for Stand With Us email updates and that you can get the latest resources and share, uh, that you can share and the toughest questions answered and talking points, videos, and much more at standwithus.com. Let's take a look at how you've been supporting Israel from all around the world this week. support and what an image at the end with the elderly gentleman blowing a kiss to each and every one of our kidnapped brothers and sisters as we all do right now a big shout out to the stand with us team all around the world working so hard educating in schools on campus and with the public if you like what stand with us is doing you can help to keep it strong by donating at standwithus.com slash donate don't forget stay united stay proud be vocal go to rallies write to your elected representatives comment on social media posts, uh, call into the media, do whatever you can do. Uh, we'll get through this together and we will prevail. Um, Yisrael, hi. Thanks for joining us.